Hi everyone, I'm Darren Nair, the creator and host of Pod Hostage Diplomacy. We're currently taking an extended break right now because I'm dealing with health issues. We will be back once I have fully recovered. Thank you so much for listening to Pod Hostage Diplomacy and take care. Welcome to Pod Hostage Diplomacy. We work to free hostages and the unjustly detained around the world. Together with their families, we share their stories and let you know how you can help bring them home. Now, when it comes to using the family to get for Russia to get what they want, if that's the case, they've picked the wrong family because I'm not going to carry water for the Russian authorities. These are some of the most courageous and resilient people among us. I never thought that my mother, Nahi Tagavi, will ever have a link to negotiations in Vienna about the JCPOA. That's so crazy. People who have never given up hope. Trevor told his girlfriend to tell me to, to be strong. So I'm trying to be strong for Trevor. You know, if, if Trevor can cope with what he's dealing with, exactly. we, we can sure cope with the stress. People who will never stop working to reunite their families. We'd like to meet with the president. Uh, we believe that, you know, he has, uh, he's surrounded by lots of uh, experienced and educated advisors, but I don't believe that any of them have ever had a, a child taken hostage by a foreign country, especially not a superpower like Russia. And we'll be right there by their side until their loved one comes back home. Because um, if enough people care, then the right people will care enough. I'm Darren Nair, and I've been campaigning with many of these families for years. When I first started campaigning with these families, I noticed they struggled to get the media attention they needed. So I decided to create this podcast, which is a safe space for the families to speak as long as they need to about their loved ones and what needs to be done to bring them home. Nobody can prepare you for what our family is going through. Even if someone had told me one year before, in one year, this is going to happen, prepare yourself. It's impossible. Thank you for listening and welcome to Port Hostage Diplomacy. Welcome to Port Hostage Diplomacy. Aya Hijazi is an American citizen and a humanitarian. She's the founder and director of the Bloody Foundation that works to help children in Egypt who live on the streets. In May 2014, when the crackdown on civil society in Egypt was gathering pace, Egyptian police raided the Bloody Foundation's offices and arrested Aya her husband and her colleagues. They were wrongfully imprisoned in Egypt for almost three years. Human Rights Watch called their wrongful imprisonment a travesty of justice. On 16 September 2016, Aya's family met with White House Deputy National Security Advisor Avril Haines. The following statement was released by National Security Council spokesperson at the time, Ned Price. Deputy National Security Advisor Avril Haines met today at the White House with the family of Aya Hijazi, a U.S.-Egyptian dual citizen who was detained in Egypt while doing humanitarian work and has been held in prison for over two years. DNSA Haines reiterated the President's deep concern for the welfare of all American citizens held abroad and assured Hijazi's family that the United States will continue to offer her all possible consular support. The United States calls on the government of Egypt to drop all charges against Hijazi and release her from prison. Today, we have the honor of speaking to Aya herself. Aya, we're so sorry for what you, your husband and your colleagues went through. We're so happy that you're free and back home in the United States. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. 
Thank you, Darren. The honor is mine. Can you please walk us through what happened? Yeah, so I'll start um, around the context of what was happening in Egypt um, a little bit before 2014. So really quickly, uh, of course, there was the Arab Spring 2011, um, the one or two years of democracy, um, and then under, of course, the un very unpopular, quite Muslim Brotherhood rule, and then President, so Defense Minister Abdel Fattah Sisi um, led a coup. Um, of course, many wouldn't call it a coup then. Uh, and then he became president in 2014. Um, yes, 2014. And so this was when basically there was still a protest movement. Um, there was a lot of freedom, but but it was starting to be curtailed. Um, there were arrests of Islamists, mostly um, supporters of the um, the president, the late president, Mohamed um, Morsi. But... Um, I belong to what we call in Egypt um, the civil society, like people who are um, civil society and proponents of a civil state. So we're, um, we don't want a military state and we don't want a religious state. And so at that time of 2014, there were really no, no people from uh, the people I represent or I'm part of uh, the civil state, like there were no people arrested. Um, but it was very clear that democracy wasn't going anywhere. Um, so it was at that time that, um, that I not only decided because I had started my foundation Biladi a little bit before that, but this is when I gave all of my focus to Biladi, um, to a nonprofit, to something very apolitical, oddly enough, um, that wasn't really like we weren't doing any criticism of the regime. Uh, we really wanted to do good, um, and keep movement going, but you know, without criticism. So this was, this was the context. Um, so we had, uh, we were doing like various projects. Uh, the one that was mostly known was the street children, but we've also done like various dialogues. Uh, we've also done like some, uh, garbage cleanup in, in slums. Um, so on, on May 1st, like there was actually like no expectation that we'd have any, um, confrontation with the authorities. Um, uh, actually like quite contrary uh we've had like i've spoken to the police twice and one time like they were seeing me with children and they were like what is this so i invited them upstairs to see the children and they commended the work and they're like great work um so i had no expectation of um, what was going to happen um although although i must say that like people always warn that there's um um, the police use street children as thugs. So like, this is not a project you want to approach. Um, so on that May 1st, um, I was out with my husband then. Um, and then we, uh, we received a call from one of, one of the Biladi members that a group of what they called thugs came, um, and attacked the place claiming that they're looking for a child. So to explain, um, what would happen, like a lot of these children are runaways um, and uh, a lot of times, like parents come looking for them. So our protocol at Biledi was when parents come, we first meet with the parents and like, um, we, we engage them. And then we ask separately, we ask the children to also meet with the parents and try to work out an agreement with them, whether it's better for them to stay, to return to the parents, um, or to stay with us. And we've had like, and then I think like three or four encounters where, 
uh, one time we, we were the ones who took the child to his parents, um, to his parents' home. Um, the others, like the children would go back and forth between us and their parents. Um, so this was the first where like the, where, where the supposed family like came with, um, not batons, but like sticks. And they actually like intimidated people, um, uh, the volunteers and members of Piladi, but also the children, like they broke one of the, one of the glasses, um, and struck one at the head. Um, and so this was surprising. We haven't known, like, we didn't know the child, like no one even knew because like people or children living in the street, they know each, each other. Like no one has heard of that, um, child. So, so what happened then was <laughs> my husband went and went to the, went with these, with a the family and took them to the police station, supposedly to file a complaint that they have attacked Biledi. Um, he told me not to go, not to go upstairs, like to, to the nonprofit, but, um, of course I couldn't leave the children behind. So, so I went and we were just waiting to see what will happen. Um, so like two hours later, the police came and they took all the children and then me, um, to the police station. Um, and, and it wasn't really interrogation. Like we were faced with the parents, um, and it seemed then, like it seemed that first night, like it was a regular questioning of, you know, who's right, whose story is right. Um, but then the second day, um, like I, they were bringing, like we weren't in handcuffs. We weren't even in a cell. Like they didn't, uh, we didn't sleep in a cell. We slept just on a sofa, um, supposedly not being arrested. So that like we were going back and forth um, being questioned. Uh, until the next day, like I was just expecting to meet the, um, the chief investigator of that police department. And instead it was an officer from national security. Um, and this is when he started like hurling insults. And <laughs> this is when the episode of beating happened. And he was saying like, Oh, you American spy, um, like America pays you to do this, to take children to protests. Why do you do this? You traitor. And this is where it was clear, where it became clear to me that it was something political. Like the only, um, uh, the only, um, sign or indicator before that is that when the police came to the nonprofit, they're like, show us your Canadian passports. I'm like, Canadian, obviously I wasn't Canadian, but they were trying to let me say, obviously my American. And so at, at that at that encounter with the national security officer is like America won't come for you. And then he just stomped on my American passport. Um, I hadn't even like said anything about America or called, called for America's help. Um, but then, so then what happened was, um, they took my husband separately and they told him to admit that I was a spy and that I use like weird recording equipment. And if he just testifies, he would be a witness um, and nothing would happen further. And he was, uh, tortured and electrocuted for that, but he, um, but he refused. So they told him like, okay, you know, you think you can defy us. So as a, like, as a punishment, n neither you or her will ever, will ever see the day of light again. And then they gave us this, um, criminal, like these criminal charges, not related to uh, espionage or anything like I'm saying criminal as opposed to political. Um, so that it was really like really frightening charges. We were charged with human trafficking, with making like preparing 
porn materials, I think, from the kids and, and then letting them watch porn and exploiting them sexually, like just like really hideous charges that even no lawyer would want to intervene. And the U.S. government wouldn't want to intervene. And that's that's that was what the U.S. government would say at the beginning when my family would talk to them. They're like, no, this this isn't political. This is this is clearly a criminal case. I'm so sorry to hear that. I think, I mean, that was obviously their intention to make you look guilty and use the state media to kind of tarnish your reputations. Um, and you see that with lots of uh, countries that practice hostage diplomacy or take political prisoners, uh, countries like Iran, Venezuela, and Russia, um, and China. Um, so what were the conditions of your detention itself? Uh, were you held in solitary confinement or were you held in a cell with many other prisoners? Um, so I was really almost treated like any uh, other um, non-political prisoner. Um, so besides that episode of uh, like assault, I was just, um, I, I went to the police. Uh, normally prisoners um, or people in, in detention, like they'd go to the police station and then they'd be transferred. Um, like there isn't really one set criteria of like when or how they transfer to prison. So I was... Um, held in like a regular cell. The, of course, like I was supposed to be held in a cell that was underground and it had no ventilation. It had like just roaches ro like flying around. It's, um, thank God it wasn't, um, like they decided to transfer us to another cell. Um, just how like the, the arrangement was. And so we, the cells are underground. It had some light. Um, but there's like, it's very small. Like it fits only, I think we were, it, it fits like four people or five, but sometimes we'd be like seven people um, that we couldn't all sleep at once at night. So we'd like exchange, uh, like, uh, <laughs> it's turns, we do turns, like some people would stay awake while others sleep. Um, when, when the cell was, uh, had more people, of course, like they wouldn't give you food. Uh, so you had to depend entirely on what your family bring you. Um, and there was like no exercise in police stations, um, no beds, obviously, or anything like that. But this was, the, this is what police stations are like in Egypt. Um, a lot of people, um, die, uh, in police stations because of, um, like the, you know, no medical care, no, um, no exercise, no sunlight. Uh, and then I was transferred like 12 days later, I was transferred to, to prison, um, in prison, like it is, of course, there's all the problems with prisons, like overcrowding, um, not enough bathrooms. Also there is food, but it's inadequate. So people, so like you almost entirely depend on what your family bring you in money wise and like food and personal items wise. Um, but it was slightly better. There was like, there was sunlight <laughs> at least, which was very important, of course. Um, and exercise after like pre-trial, um, interestingly enough, you know, pre-trial detainees, they're supposed to be innocent, uh, as opposed to like legally innocent, but they receive kind of a worse treatment. So like I wasn't allowed outside exercise, um, in my pre-trial detention, um, cell before, but then like, um, actually the police, the, the police, like the chief inspector of the, like basically of the prison, he, it was nice enough and he transferred me to another ward, which was the sentenced ward. And, and it was actually, oddly enough, better than the pre-trial pre detention ward. Did you have any medical conditions at the time? And 
uh, if so, were you given the medical care you needed? Because I know you just said like uh, if they were being held at the police station, they don't get any medical medical care, which is why that's where detainees tend to die. But when you were held in prison, uh, did you have any medical conditions, or e- even uh, either pre-existing or as a result of the detention itself? And if so, were you allowed to you know go to the infirmary or meet the, see the doctor or get any kind of medical care? Yeah, medical care is really, really terrible. Um, so yeah, I got sick twice. Um, one of one time I was having like a problem with my wisdom teeth, and I get all these infections, and like they wouldn't even um, like the hospital would, doesn't have the right amounts of antibiotics, and so you, if you have money, you could send through the hospital uh, for outside medication, but it takes like two weeks. <laughs> um, um, up to two weeks to, to get, to get the medication you want. And like, um, I just suffered miserably. Um, the second time was, I am asthmatic and there's so much smoking in the cells. Um, and there's nothing you could do about it. There's no like non-smoking areas. So while they would get me on the, uh, what is it called? The, <laughs> the ventilator or uh, whatever, but like it wouldn't, I still couldn't breathe. Um, so like I, I ended up staying at the cell's door, like spending nights over at the cell store trying to guess for air, um, until some, uh, some people like gave me actually antihistamines. I didn't know what they were, but they're like, this would work for you. And with, without the doctor's prescription and, and they did. So I had to like send for my mom and then send for like wait for another month to actually get, uh, almost a month to get the medication and I had to do negotiations like, no, please. I need more than the, like, I, I need more than just like one, one pack. So it was, um, yeah, it, 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 <laughs> it was a lot of suffering at the end. Um, and yeah, I think if I stayed like this was towards the end where of course the stress of awaiting the judgment, um, really, uh, augments the, the stress on the body. And so I think if I were sentenced, like I may have really, really suffered miserably, uh, from my asthma. Again, we're so sorry to hear that. Um, you are an American citizen. You are an American citizen. Sorry. Um, did you receive consular support from the U S government? Cause I know you said they publicly didn't want to say anything about your case. They said, this is a, a criminal case, not a political one. At least that's what they said initially. Um, but w- were you able to see anyone from the U.S. Embassy? Do you get the consular support you are entitled to as an American citizen? Yeah, so I don't know legally what consular support give, uh, gives, but I was like the the, the uh, U.S. Embassy would visit, um, I don't know, like once a month or something. Like they would just ask if if I have access to food, if I'm being tortured or not, and that that's it. So at one point I'm like, all right, this is not useful. And I told them not to come. Um, like it was, uh, um, I, I wasn't, I was really unhappy with, um, with them. Like, for example, when, when my, when the advocacy on my behalf started and, and there was interest in the state department, they kept saying, Oh, but you didn't give us the signature. Then they lost the signature. Like my consent form that the U S advocate on my behalf and then at one point they they said, Oh, America's now advocating on your behalf. We were really surprised. Like it, it, it's like, it's not expected to do that. So where, where I knew that it was expected to do that. And then like t- towards the very end, um, when there was a lot of, uh, when, when there was a lot of co- coverage of my case, like they, they did two things. 
first, um, like they let, I, I wasn't able to see my husband except when we go to court. And sometimes this wouldn't happen six months at a time. So they brought my husband for a visit and then like they got me permission to, to treat my teeth in an outside hospital. So this, like this only happened once I was in the, like I was in the, uh, under the spotlights. So you're saying the United States government only decided to do more once there was media coverage of your case, not before. No, not before. Like I had the, you know, for it was, so I think I saw my husband, he visited in October, 2016. We were arrested in May, 2014. Um, so yeah. And then like, also this was like visiting my husband came with the papers for my teeth and I've suffered from my teeth uh, before. So like, it was very clear that they would do the least uh, that they can do. Um, were you given access to a lawyer? So yeah, we had our own lawyer. Um, like the um, uh, the embassy does not give lawyers. Like all that they could do is uh, recommend lawyers. So we had our own law- own lawyers. And I understand from previous interviews that you've given and articles when we did the research on your case is that um, you were not allowed to speak to your lawyer privately. Is that true? Yeah, that's true, and um, especially. Um, uh, so this is not really answering that question only, but, uh, but it's uh, another thing, like <laughs> when it comes to my treatment as an American, like in some ways they, I got a better treatment and in some ways I got a worse treatment. So because of my case and because it was an American case and a political case, like, um, they really, really monitored my, all of my correspondences very, very closely, whether they were letters, whether they were books or even visits from, from lawyers. So when the lawyers would come, they would send someone actually to listen in. What was your defense like? I mean, uh, was your lawyer allowed to give you an appropriate defense or did they do things like what the Iranian judiciary would do? Would be like, they would give you access to the case file at the very last minute, like a few hours before you go to court or not give you access to the case file not give you access to the case file at all? Or was your lawyer able to get all the information he or she needed and uh, see you as often as required? Because I know obviously he couldn't speak, uh, he or she couldn't speak to you privately, but did they actively do things to prevent your lawyer from giving you an appropriate defense? Yeah. So, so with that, no, like they, they actually uh, gave us the right for defense and also in here, it would be helpful to share some context on, on, on what Egypt has been doing. So, like, um, in 2013, as I mentioned, like, it started cracking down only on Islamists. And then in 2014, I was the first, like, from the civil society and civil state. And then it started cracking down on others. And also, like, observing the laws that also deteriorated. It started with observing the laws and giving, like, lawyers access. And now, like, it wouldn't even... Now things have been shifting where the courts wouldn't allow lawyers even like to photocopy case files. They just have like give them an hour or so to read them and photocopying would be an, at exorbitant prices, like 10,000 or 20,000 pounds per, um, per case. But in my case, they were able to, um, to get the documents they needed. What were the court hearings themselves like? Were, were these fair trials in your opinion or was it, were these sham trials? Yeah, it's a hundred percent sham trials. Uh, at the very, like the first two and a half years, they weren't even court hearings. They would call them like just detention renewals. They wouldn't even listen substantively. Um, 
So there is a law in Egypt that says pretrial detention is limited to two years. That law is not observed at all. Uh, and by the way, worst of all, like the um, the American embassy tried to say that the law um, that the law isn't two years. Like the um, if you're interested, I could explain what the law is and what the American embassy is saying. So the law says um, it's two years, but then during CC, sometime I think during my imprisonment, it was amended that if you are in retrial, um, meaning that you've already been sentenced, but then you are in retrial, then pretrial detention could be extended to beyond two years. The American embassy is trying to say that, no, 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 it's not, re pre it's not if you are in retrial, like they have the right to imprison you indefinitely, basically indefinitely in pretrial detention. Um, so anyway, <laughs> here I am digressing. Yeah. So anyway, so, so that's one part of like not observing the law. Um, like they, the first two and a half years, basically until probably September, or October is that when I started actually having a trial, like they were just, um, they were the judge, the presiding judge, like he is even called and it's a he, um, which means like the renewal judge, like all he do is renew, like without looking substantively. And like sometimes when the lawyers would try to talk, they wouldn't let them. Uh, when we try to talk, like they would just dismiss us. Um, and even this, like in, in my, in my case, like when we actually had a trial and the lawyers delivered their, um, defenses, like I started giving my defense and then like the, the judge midway is like, all right, that's enough. Um, so there was that. And also like, yeah, the, uh, for, for the two and a half years, the judges would go on a judge's holiday for almost six months at a time. It's not official, but, but it's at the time of like from May to November, this is when I'd be, when I know like when May comes, I'm not going to go to court for six, for six months. Like they do the administrative uh, renewal without the judges going, they go for Ramadan break, the two holidays break and the, for the summer break. And this is like a six month, six months period. Um, of course, like the, the, the actual trial itself, which started in September, October, like it's, um, on paper, uh, it looked like a real trial, um, where they would let observers in. Um, but of course we knew that judge, the judgment of course was political. So just to take a step back and give our listeners a better understanding of why this happened to you. Um, obviously you've given us, uh, some good background at the beginning before you were arrested. Uh, but can you tell us more about your background itself? Because we know you grew up in the US, you went to Egypt, you met your husband in Tare Square, and you established the Bloody Foundation with what I understand was the money that you and your husband had saved away for your wedding. Can you just tell us a bit? <laughs> Obviously, that was an amazing thing for you and your husband to do. And uh, thank you for doing that. But could you just give us um, a bit more background on the earlier years of your life? And when I say that, I know you're still quite young. You're in your thirties, <laughs> but can you just tell us a bit more about your background? Mid thirties, almost forty now. Um, so my background was between mostly actually not Egypt, but Saudi Arabia and the U.S. Um, my parents have met in the U.S. They were both doing their masters. Um, and then my dad found like a good job opportunity in Saudi Arabia and that's where they moved and that's where they had me. And I grew up most of my, uh, the first 12 years, most of them were spent in Saudi Arabia. Then, uh, we would just go to, um, uh, to the U S in the summer. Like we had some family there. And then at 12, uh, I moved to the U S 
Um, and then did most of middle school and high school. Like one, the last year of high school was in Egypt. Um, and then I started law school in Egypt, but then I came back midway and did a conflict resolution, um, BA degree in here, um, Northern Virginia, George Mason. That's where I spent my years in the U S Northern Virginia. Um, and then I, I started doing law school, the JD degree, uh, in Egypt, it's undergrads here. It's of course a JD. Um, I finished my first year and this was when the Arab spring happened. Um, and this is when I decided to go to Egypt, um, hoping that we'd have really a democracy in human, uh, a state that observes human rights in a nutshell. Can you tell us about establishing the bloody foundation itself and the amazing work that you've been doing? Um, so it, it came, of course, uh, it came in that context of the Arab Spring. Um, and, and this is why uh, I think, of course, people people would ask me, why were you arrested? Why were you the one who was targeted? Um, so I don't have an answer for that. But but uh, like it, it's, I think, many different pieces. So one piece of it was obviously that I was, you know, pro the Arab Spring. Um, I was doing protests. But uh, like, as, as I explained a little bit in the... Um, uh, when, when I was giving context that it was, it, be, it became very clear. Like I have never seen Egypt so polarized between um, like Islamists, pro-military, pro-old regime um, and, and pro-revolution. And it was very clear that it was going the dictatorship way. And I thought like, no, we must have a way beyond polarization and away from politics where we could like do organizing and community engagement and, um, like in Egypt, we still didn't have a huge, like, um, do it yourself, like, you know, start a nonprofit, do a startup. We, we, we didn't have that because the atmosphere wouldn't, wouldn't allow it. Um, so I, I think like during those few years, like between 2011 and 2014, the nonprofits bloomed from like nine, 9,000 nonprofits to 45,000 nonprofits. Um, so it was a time of like, people wanting to take uh, control of their destiny of wanting to do something different uh, and believing that they can. And so I felt like citizen engagement to, to, to a big extent has been protesting and asking the government for solutions. And I wanted us to do, I'm like, yes, of course the government is a failure in so many ways. And of course the government is a solution in so many ways, but we like the people also can, can offer a lot of solutions. And so for me, it was like, there was that, um, deeper purpose of, of being engaged, not only in like asking or in, the, you know, in protesting, but also in doing, um, and, and, and training, like doing trainings to, to let people, you know, do project design and project implementation. And so, so we chose like the most, uh, the most problems that people really, really suffer from. And have you been to Egypt before? No, no, I have not been to Egypt. Uh, as you know, I used to be the director on the board of Amnesty International UK. And, uh, uh I don't think, uh, I would probably be arrested uh, the moment I arrive. Well, they, you know, they, they probably return you <laughs> and be like, don't come to Egypt again. <laughs> Um, so to like the first thing that strikes you when you go to Egypt, a lot of people who don't know Egypt will like, you know, think the pharaonic civilization and whatnot. But the first thing that strikes you in Egypt is poverty and like, uh, poverty really by seeing how downtrodden people are. And like, it just strikes you in the face of 
of how they look and how ragged the clothes are. And sometimes like even, you know, dirt's accumulating. Um, but also then later it started with garbage being in the streets, like even in more upper scale neighborhoods, there have been like garbage dumps in the streets. And it's, I could like, I could go at length explaining why of course it's all related to corruption. And so we're like, you know, what, what are some problems that society suffers from and how can we uh, engage and how can we bridge, like bring people together in, in Biladi, we had people who are pro military rule. We had people anti, like, so it was a way of uniting people. So we, we found that garbage and we really did some great work. People like, I, I do remember like, um, one time when we told people that we're going to clean up your place, like they did the trilling, like the Egyptian, <laughs> um, like really, really happy that just someone's going to clean up their garbage dumps. And then there was, of course, the street children. They were like, they are, um, I guess the most abused and, and forgotten. Uh, and of course, it's not only a problem in Egypt. Um, people really despise them and treat them really badly. And of course, like they start their lives at the streets and out of poverty. So, but then they slowly become criminals. Um, as of course they'd, they'd only steal and then like they'd be involved in, in fights. And then of course there's rape and then they become rapists and all of that. And so I thought that they, we could do a lot. We could offer them a lot. And, and the truth is that we did. And, and people were really, really excited about that project. Like, um, we want, we went on radio and we went on TV and at one point it, it was a very like popular youth radio program. Like we've had just hundreds of people wanting to volunteer and they were really excited about the project. Like people would come and spend time with them and watch movies with them. And, and at one point, um, I, I brought three of the kids to the AUC, to the American university in Cairo. Um, and they were like really dressed nicely and they were really adorable. Like you wouldn't say that they were street kids. Um, and they really know how to melt your hearts, you know, they're just adorable kids. And and then the professor, like at the end of, um, at the end of the meeting, she's like, every one of my students has changed their minds about the, about street children. Like, you know, you just view them as this nuisance, as these criminals to be taken care of. But then once you engage with them, you really understand their problem. Um, and so it was like, you know, I've done various I've done a lot of work in different areas. I've been to the White House. I've been in prison. But like the happiest time in my life was really when I went, when I worked with them and I just saw them like the human touch of how like I had a rule that they they're, they're not allowed to call me mom. But then at the end, of course, they, they ended up calling me mom and I, I didn't stop it. Um, they like they were very protective of me and of the people who worked with them. And like we've had a lot of honest conversations of why society disdains them. They even say like, why would people spit on us? And of course, like while I didn't condone like why people would uh, spit, like I tried to explain how they are portrayed to society. And we were doing like a lot of advances with them. One of them, one of the street children would, would go to school and take his exams while living on the streets. And, and he was there uh, because his father didn't want, that's another problem like with a lot of the lower class, like the fathers didn't want them to continue school and they would take them to work like, what do you call it? Not, not interns, but you know, in, in training with mechanics and things like that. And there they're really abused and beaten. 
Um, so like, that's one reason why some of them would run away. Um, so we were starting to take them back to school and giving them lessons. Um, and it was beautiful. And, and to this day, like people would write to me, they'd be like, we wanted, we were so encouraged by what we, you were doing. We wish we could do a project like that. But unfortunately, because of your story, we would never approach that topic. I mean, it sounds like amazing work you've been doing. And, uh, I'm sure there are many of our listeners who agree and would like to help. So you're still the director of the bloody foundation. The Bloody Foundation is still doing amazing work. How can our listeners help the Bloody Foundation uh, right now if they want to? So I'm still the director of the Bloody Foundation, um, yet legally and in terms of projects, it, it's a different Bloody. Uh, it was an Egyptian Bloody then, now it is an American Bloody. Um, we don't, we no longer do any field work like this um, because that is really strictly not allowed and dangerous. We do actually defense of political. Sh- uh, prisoners and you know while i told you like it was the most vulnerable group that we found at back then like in 2012 and 2014 was three children now there's children who are arrested for political reasons and they are tortured nonetheless and and they are really um they are abused nonetheless so we defend children and women who are in prison for political reasons and sometimes also freedom of expression um like there are girls and women who are in prison like and have up to 10 year sentences for tiktok i don't know if you've heard about them for like just you know doing what girls do on tiktok um so there's there's a lot of uh, uh i'd really encourage encourage uh, listeners to 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 to, to take a look at what's happening in egypt to take a look at the repression that's happening in egypt and uh, and and whatever way that they can, like not support, <laughs> you know, the U.S. is a close ally of Egypt, um, but but turns a blind eye into all the abuses that happen. Um, they try to smear all the p- political prisoners as terrorists. They are not terrorists. They're people like me. Of course, we do have a terrorism problem, like, you know, um, to be clear about it. And there are, of course, terrorists like there are anywhere but most of the political prisoners are just regular people who are trying to make Egypt a better place. Um, so they could, you know, there's a lot of influence, uh, a room for influence of U.S. policy or whatever European policy towards Egypt of uh, raising the profile of political prisoners, of um, exposing the repression um, that has been happening. And of course, the military that is sent to Egypt, um, the U.S. does certify every year that there's progress in human rights and there's absolutely no progress in human rights, but manifest deterioration. So there is no reason to give that waiver that the U.S. continues to give. So if I wanted to find out more about the Bloody Foundation itself and what you currently do, what would be the best way to get in touch? uh, As in, what's your website address? So the website is uh, B-E-L-A-D-Y-I-H.org. We have Facebook pages and we have this Egypt Prison Atlas page um, that gives a lot of information about women and child political prisoners, like who they are, what their stories is, what their sentences are. Uh, it gives a profile of the judges, um, the, the terrorism circuit judges, and what their judgments are, like including the death sentences. Um, so it's really, uh, if someone wants to, it's, it's like a map of their oppression in Egypt, um, pertaining to women and children. Oh, we, re- uh, we recommend our listeners check it out. Uh, again, thank you for all the work you're doing. Now, going back to your own experience in prison, 
So during the almost three years you were held in prison, you were able to learn French, Spanish, and how to draw. So you did you do this to keep yourself busy? And uh, why did you learn these? So, so yes, a, 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 um, a little bit or a lot of I'm like still not confident about my Spanish and French. So drawing, I was learning it uh, before prison. Um, I, I just had some more time to draw. And yeah, I had a, I had a schedule in prison um, to, to feel like like I was, you know, a prisoner feels useless. Like after you've been contributing to society and to your family, like you are not contributing to anyone. So this is, I guess my theory was this is the time where if I can't contribute to, uh, to the outside world, I could contribute to my own growth. Um, and also to my sanity, because it's very hard to stay sane. Um, not only in prison, but in, in prison, not knowing what will happen to you. And that is of course, like the biggest toll toll on on on, your, on any prisoner's mind and sanity and so the way to stay sane was for like self-improvement um and also like i, I so I, I wanted to learn languages before um of course in the u.s spanish is super useful um in the middle east uh, and a lot of the world like uh, french is useful but also like I, I had a schedule of what to read and like novels were my, what i would read on our holiday friday um, so that I could have some escape, uh, like a mental escape. So you were released in April 2017 after you were arrested in May 2014. Can you tell us more about the events leading up to your release? Um, all right. So as you've mentioned, uh, in September, I think when, when, um, when Nat Price gave that statement, um, so there was uh, also like, I would like to credit the U.S. is ultimately 100% credited for my release, but I would also like to credit the Egyptian nonprofits and the international non um, human rights organizations, of course, like Human Rights and Amnesty and Human Rights First. So there's been like um, really the um, at first, like the first year and a half of my arrest, no news agency in Egypt was allowed allowed to publish about me. But then, like, after the case was forgotten a little bit, apparently, like, uh, Egyptian newspapers, especially the dissent ones that were still, like, dissent newspapers, they were allowed to uh, to publish. And so this is when my, like, advocacy for, for me and my case started gaining traction. Um, when Egyptian nonprofits were able to publish um, in, like, dissent newspapers in Egypt and then convince international human, <clears throat> human rights organizations to publish and say that I'm not a criminal. Um, and then like the Washington Post picked this up. And then like the, um, as I told you uh, in our private meeting, uh, when my congressman, uh, um, congressman Don Beyer and our neighbor, <laughs> Congressman Conley, when they started, when they uh, did a press conference and called for my release, encouraging senators to write a statement um, to, the, to the State Department. So this was all like the, the outside what was happening on the outside international, um, uh, international end, um, on the, on the more like private end, the, uh, the Egyptian government, um, of course, like they didn't tell me why I was arrested, like really arrested or what they really wanted from me. But, um, they made it clear, um, they, in, it was okay. It was in April. So just like two weeks before the arrest, that the director of the uh, Egyptian intelligence sent my lawyer 
with an offer of <clears throat> of relinquishing my Egyptian citizenship um, and then walking free without trial. This was the offer. Uh, the reason is like they they want to they want to smear like um, activists and just show that they're you know all of their loyalty is to whatever other country that they belong to, mostly to the U.S. And so then I refused. I said I will not um, give up my citizenship. And so I came. The lawyer came again, with, not with a counter offer, but saying like more of a threat that uh, if I don't give up my citizenship, like you know, it could be a life sentence. Um, they didn't say what the dealings were with President Trump were at the time. So I went to court um, or to trial, rather, knowing that I was <clears throat> very well at risk of having a life sentence. And especially that the, the Trump White House or administration hadn't, uh, like, I haven't heard any statements from them. So it was a lot of people thought that, you know, President Trump would not advocate for a Muslim, also Arab political prisoner, or even like strained ties with Egypt. So it was a time. So at that time, like I, I had a fear, um, that my, that my imprisonment would have to, that I would be delayed until like the next democratic president. So can you talk to us about the day of your release itself? Um, because I know I, I, I've seen some of the other interviews you did. I know I, I saw the moment the judge announced things and I saw you, you and your husband and everyone else cheering in the cell. But like, can you just talk to us? What was it like in, in, in that moment uh, when you were there and you found out? So, yeah. Okay. The day of the release is different from the day of the acquittal. Um, not sure what the procedures are like in the U.S., but in Egypt, you're not, a, you're not released when you're acquitted. It's, it, uh, like the paperwork may take days, weeks, or months even. So on that April 16th, uh, yeah, I went to court. I was bracing for a life sentence. Like even the lawyers then would be like, oh, it could be 25, 15, like the best we could hope for, hope for a seven. So I was like hoping and praying that I, that not to cry or faint. I, <laughs> I don't like to appear weak. Um, and so I was just mentally prepared. I was truly hoping for an acquittal, um, because I know it matters to people. Um, so, but I wasn't expecting it. And so when the judge, like when the, so the way judgments are read, like they usually, like if there's a case with several people, they would start with the highest, um, the longest sentences, sentence or the most severe sentence. So he, he read my husband's name. I'm like, Oh, Oh God, he got the longest sentence. And then he said my name. I'm like, Oh, I'm just like him. And then he started going through the others. I'm like, no way he'd bring like the ghosty people. Like no way he'd give them long sentences. And until he read the list, I'm like, what's happening there then? And he said acquittal and uh, I, w I, could, I was incredulous. I couldn't believe it. And so I was of course elated and thinking that I like, <laughs> of course it's a huge victory, moral and psychological and everything. But I also like at that time, I was basically the hero of Egypt and newspapers were like, oh, she's innocent. Um, I still like, I'm not, I'm very distrustful of the authorities. So I went to prison and then I like waited for the news to hear, to hear it. Like maybe they changed their minds. And then like, I also waited the next day to read it in the newspapers, um, that nothing would change. So this was the acquittal, which was quite different from the release. So how long did it take until you were actually released? 
So the release happened um, rather quickly. It was, I believe, Sunday, the acquittal. Um, and then Monday, if I remember correct, M Monday was um, like the, the Egypt, um, what he called Easter. <laughs> and Tuesday at like 11 o'clock, I, um, I, I was called to be released. And this is where um, I didn't know what to expect. Like, I just honestly thought that's it, one of two scenarios. Like either my family would be waiting for me outside the prison gate. This is like in the abnormal like um, circumstances because prisoners generally or normally tend to go from, uh, from prison to the police station that they were first held at and then be processed from the police station. No, sorry, from, no, first like at a central police station and then that's to their own police stations, I believe. So I was, so I thought that I might be taken to that police station or I'd find my family outside, but I didn't find either. Um, there was the like armed forces SUVs waiting. Um, and of course I knew I had to go with them. I had no idea what, um, who they were or what was going to happen. And this is when, like, I asked and they wouldn't answer. But, uh, like, so, Al-Qanazir prison is, like, two hours outside of Cairo. So, like, the two-hour trip, uh, at the end of the two-hour trip, <coughs> I was taken to the um, director of national intelligence himself. And this is where, like, I had no idea what he wanted to say. Um, and this is where he said that I had to meet Trump, President Trump, um, or so at the time the design was that me and my husband would go and meet with the president. My husband wasn't released yet. I was the only one released from like the seven people held with us. And so he basically wanted to guarantee that I and my husband would agree else as he threatened, like my husband could stay in prison a little bit longer. And of course we all know what a little bit longer was like a life sentence longer. Um, and so, so just to understand, um, you meeting the director of intelligence of Egypt, right? Yes. So the director of intelligence of Egypt is forcing you to have a meeting with President Trump of the United States. Yes. Why? Why does he care uh, about what you do in the US? Why does he care? Of course, he wouldn't say whatever lame reason he, get, he gave was you owe him a thank you. Obviously, that's, that's not what he wanted. Um, so to me, I think what the U.S. government got and what the, of course, like I didn't want that meeting with President Trump. Um, let's not make it over, um, uh, overtly political, but I, I didn't want that meeting with uh, President Trump. But of course, like, so I think President Trump was a big winner in that meeting, uh, of course. So it was, you know, he, he came to office January 25th. This was April 16th. So he was able to boast amply about it that he got... Uh, he released a political prisoner whom Obama has failed uh, to release. Um, and, and so like he really bragged about it for, for, for a few months. So he got that foot off. Whereas, um, <clears throat> whereas like the, the win for president CC of my release was that he was able, all of this like is conjecture, obviously. Um, but uh, like Pre Obama would never meet with president CC. Um, Hillary Clinton like said that she, when we thought she might win, she said she wouldn't meet with CC unless he releases me. And so, um, Trump, President Trump met with CC like just three weeks before my release. And like everyone made it clear to me that that was the condition. Like, if you guarantee that she'll be released, we will meet you. 
what the government's gained from what the Egyptian government's gained from my meeting with President Trump is what they did following that. All the state media confirmed that I was an American spy. And, um, um, and, and so, yeah, that's their win. So it seems to me that the U.S. government negotiated your release, not because it was the right thing to do, because it was a there was a political gain for both leaders uh, of the uh, for the Egyptian president and the U.S. president. It wasn't because it was the right thing to do. So this is this is a little bit complicated. Um, so obviously, the first two years they didn't do it because it was the right thing to do. They might also analysis and conjecture is like, you know, we, the, the Egypt is an ally. Why strain the relationship with it? It's not worth it. Even if like there's this one citizen, it's really not worth it. But then like when pressure was mounting through the local and international nonprofits and the media, and when like us officials would be asked by media, like, why is she in prison? They were, they were, being responsive and this was then like still the Obama administration, like they were being responsive to the people. And so why they started intervening was I think because they were being accountable to, to the people or the media asking people to intervene. And so this was kind of the right thing to do. I don't know how Obama would have handled it. Like it's like, you know, advocacy, like I also like to be fair in crediting the administrations there do. So like the advocacy heightened at the end of the Obama term. I don't know how Obama would have handled it if he would have forced a meeting like that. Um, I don't think he would have. Um, so I think like the administrations at that time, as I said, as I was said, like even Hillary Clinton was talking about it, like they were going to do it because this was a case where like they were being questioned about it. And so with Trump, like he was, he, he, since he was also being questioned about it, it's like, how do I get him an additional win, I suppose? I mean, that's just sad to hear, but uh, it's not surprising. Sad, but not surprising. Um, so, Aya, you're clearly a strong and resilient person. How did you cope with the trauma during your imprisonment itself? As in, how did you find the strength? So in, um, I'd like to say that like, my year out of prison was more was way harder than my three years in prison. Um, I was kind of prepared kind of for, uh, for, <clears throat> for imprisonment while I was protesting. Um, I, ha I wasn't prepared for, for being in prison for the nonprofit work I was doing. And so, um, first of all, like I, I felt that I was doing something, you know, contributing to society. Um, and I also had a list of things that I would be grateful for if, um, if, if I had them in prison, like sunlight, as I made clear. Um, exercise, access to books, access to letters and family visits. So like, it was more, I expected prison to be much worse. So like, like I also expected, I was okay before I went to prison with spending five years in prison with, with, with not feeling bitter about it. But of course there were like other things that made it bitter, like not knowing how long I'll spend of being charged with these really heinous crimes, um, of being forgotten totally. Um, so this, so like, I, so there, it was a mix of like having really, really, really low moments where, um, I give up and think that I'll never be released again. And also, you know, suicidal, but then there were other moments, especially, especially I have to say when there was like support from people, like when they, they'd send me letters or I know there's advocacy, but even then, uh, like I, I guess I came to terms 
I guess I came to terms with it where I asked myself, like, what have I done wrong? Like, really, I haven't done nothing wrong. Like, I tried to do something even, like, I, I do believe political engagement is our right, but it wasn't even then. Like, I was doing something safe and something that would benefit society. And, and so there's no regrets, you know, like, I just have to come to terms with it. And this is when I've had some peace. Of course, like, I've done a lot of meditation, um, and then I got access to radio after six months, like, you know, all these additional things like reading novels, meditation, radio music, like they, um, their techniques and tools that, um, that would really take the strain of thinking about what's happening. Um, and, and like a lot of, so most of my days, like the, the worst day for me was when I, when I'd hear that, um, I'll get six months, six months, you know, is a criminal sentence. Um, without going to court, without the hope of the release. Um, and like, this is when these were usually my low moments, but my the highest moments, of course, were the opposite when I was going to court and thinking that it might, I might be released. But usually like my days, you know, they, starting with exercise and, and then of course my study schedule and then like listening to the BBC at 3 p.m., um, like I would, my days were mostly pleasant and I was interacting with my colleagues and learning about crime and social structures. And so there was like, I tried to gain a lot and I did a lot of learning, like both about life and society and of course books. So there's a saying that goes, tough times don't last, tough people do. Do you have recommendations for other hostages and dear loved ones on how to cope and persevere through trauma? Yeah, uh, well, the first is psychological care. Um, like, I couldn't emphasize more the role of psychological care, which, like, is so neglected within, within, I guess, in this context, the, the hostage community, but also with the prisoners community, the family, and even, like, organizations who support them. It is invaluable. Like, even... Of course, like the family and the hostage or the prisoner themselves, they'd want to be released and think like, you know, if you're released, everything would be solved. And and that's true in a sense, but it, it, it's also not true in a sense. Um, I was talking to, at Biladi, we do provide psychological care. And um, I was talking to the psychologist debriefing her sessions with uh, current and former prisoners. And she's like, what some of the prisoners, they don't feel that they have left prison out after that they have left prison. Um, you know, prison stays with the person, uh, I suppose forever. And so, so while the ultimate goal, I guess in hostage diplomacy or, um, with political prisoners is to get the prisoner released, um, the psychological trauma will not stop. And so this is more just in kind of encouragement to, for, for a person, you know, if somehow they could get, get access to care or reading, like reading about psychotherapy, um, for the family to get that psych, you know, psychological care for themselves as they are suffering, but also to deal with the person after they're, they're released, like, you know, the trauma will not go. And then besides that, like, you know, getting used to life again, is very difficult. Engaging with people and with your loved ones is uh, difficult. And sometimes family members out of goodwill, they make it even more difficult. Um, so that's the first, of course, religion, uh, um, re religion and spirituality, like that also played a role that I neglected to mention. <laughs> I was very spiritual in prison. Um, 
And then third of all, of course, like there's the engagement and always like, which is really tied to hope. Um, sometimes there's unfortunate results where people don't get out, but it's crucial for everyone's well-being to retain hope. And part of retaining hope is, all, you know, continuing to engage, even if it seems far-fetched, um, even if release seems far-fetched, um, nothing is impossible. I think it was quite impossible for me, like to, to actually think that I would end up at the white house, but it's, but it happens. Like I wasn't this superstar. It wasn't like this, you know, <laughs> this world renowned basketball player or whatnot. And so, um, and, 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 and like my friends who, uh, who helped in advocacy, like, um, when, when they talked to congressmen, like she, my, my friend would say, Chelsea, she's also like one of the people credited for my release. Like she would call them and they'd hang up and like, she'd say they'd close one door and it opened an, another. So like, just to maintain that engagement and maintain hope and, and, and hopefully, you know, good things would follow. Thank you for that. I'm sure, uh, the families with loved ones currently held hostage abroad, uh, and, uh, former hostages will find that helpful. Now we know you're a mother, so congratulations. Uh, how is life? I mean, what are you up to now? <laughs> with motherhood or <laughs> with in, in general, because I know it's been what, uh, five, five years since your, since your release, obviously you said the first year after your release, it, it was difficult. You're recovering from the trauma. It's been five years now. Um, like, uh, I interviewed Michael Scott Moore, this, uh, German American journalist. He was held hostage by Somali pirates for 977 days. I interviewed him in March. It's been seven years since he was released. And he, I mean, he's comes across a pretty chilled out guy. He lives in Los Angeles. He's a surfer. Uh, if you follow him on social media, you'd never realize that this is a guy who was held hostage for almost a thousand days at gunpoint by Somali pirates. But seven years later, he's still, he's still no one. I, I guess nobody fully recovers. Uh, he still gets panic attacks every mm -hmm. now and then. Like it's five years, uh, since you've been released, uh, your mother, um, I, I would you, I mean, what would you say you're like now? Are you fully recovered or do you still, are there still some kind of, uh, leftovers from that trauma? I mean, yeah, I think for my case, it's a little bit different because while I was also, you know, while I was a hostage, I, would, I was also classified as a political prisoner. And so, um, so first of all, like I've left so many political prisoners behind and every day. Um, you know, working on the file of women and children arrested, uh, for political reasons is not easy. And it's, um, and it's, 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 it's trauma on its own. You know, you're unable to secure the release of so many. And if just like following the news of not only Egypt, but the Arab Spring and, and, and beyond, beyond that, it's like the wave of the right wing dictatorial governments, like it's, it's, it's own trauma of like, you know, Part of the one year that I, the, the one year trauma wasn't that I was spent three years in prison. It was more of like, what am I doing in my life? What's the purpose now? And so I'm, you know, still trying like, okay, now the Arab Spring is gone and I'm working on this fight. Like what is, you know, what is going to keep me going and what is, what should we look forward to? Um, what is, you know, um, when you have all those big dreams and now you just have to reduce them, 
Um, so I think that's where I am, but my daughter, like she's, <laughs> she's really the best thing that has happened and she's a really jolly little child and she, she keeps me going. And I guess one, one more thing to fight for. Sometimes I do feel like, why have I brought a human being to this world? But, um, but she's happy and, and I like, you know, there's more reason to, to fight to make this, this world a better place. I'm glad that you're hopeful and that uh, you come up from you've come up from this not as the victim but as a victor in in some way, uh, uh, which is which is I mean it gives other families hope that you know things will get better. So thank you for that. Um, now we're reaching the kind of how to make things better part of our podcast uh, conversation. So what should the Egyptian government be doing better? Oh, to start with, to, whoa, so much. <laughs> but to start with, like, to, to, to release the political prisoners, number one. Number two, to stop torture. Number three, to uh, stop enforced disappearances. That's one horrible thing that happens. Uh, uh, now, most of political prisoners in their journeys, they are disappeared for various periods of time, like lasting from 48 hours to undefined number of years. And so, like, even even if supposedly political imprisonment um, is somehow legal, <laughs> enforced disappearances isn't, and torture isn't. Um, and then, like, and then all this monitoring and patrolling of like they they close websites. Um, the media isn't open. Um, they they have shut down like all you know independent newspapers and uh, and TV channels. So like to open up uh, the media space, and this is. And I also like to link all this freedom to to economy and to the well-being. So it's not just freedom of expression. It's like when they have restricted all, not only all opposition, but all independent thought. For example, like, you know, um, the, the Ethiopian Grand Renaissance Dam. Um, so this is like the livelihood, the water that people drink, right? And so like they have even estranged scientists who could propose solutions that would help save people's lives. Like this is the reason isn't to bring down a dictatorship or anything like that. It's just like to say what the scientific practices should be. And so this has, you know, this freedom, like opening the space has a direct impact on people's lives of their drinking water. And so, um, like even just starting with those, um, of not restricting, uh, expression and, and the file of the prisoners, um, that would be, that would change <laughs> Egypt's tra trajectory. So I've I've looked at your social media channels. You're uh, quite active. I know you've mentioned British Egyptian human rights activist Allah. I'm not sure what his full name is, uh, but he's been on a hunger strike for quite a while. Uh, do you want to just talk about him and what needs to be done for his release? Because obviously you advocate for political prisoners in Egypt, right? Yeah, sure. So Allah Abdel Fattah is like one of the most prominent um, voices that called for the Arab Spring, he and his family. His father was um, a human rights lawyer, Saif Abdel Fattah. His mother is a mathematician. She teaches at the university. She's also a proponent of free speech. So the father um, was imprisoned at various times. His sister, his sister Sana, was imprisoned also for various times. And the family was beaten just trying to, um, just trying to gain access to him and give him letters. Um, so he's been on a hunger strike. He's been, there's this, um, terrible practice that Egypt has been doing. Um, activists call it prison rotation. So while the person is in prison, 
or like maybe a few days before his or her uh, release or after their release, they're rotated and charged with other crimes that they could not have even committed. So Ala Abdel Fattah had served his sentence and he was released. He, he did nothing wrong. And then he was rotated to another case where, um, where he had lost uh, prospects of hope. So he was, if at, of course he was innocent, but, if, but even according to the law, um, he served the sentence that he was charged with. And now he was basically, you know, um, like if, if there is rule of law, it would be called illegally. And so um, he's only being punished because he was one of the like loudest voices in the Arab Spring. And that's why and he is a, you know, a British citizen. I got released because I was an American citizen. The UK should do the same. Um, uh, it's his, you know, if he would have, well, here, you know, <laughs> um, racism and discrimination comes up. Like if he was just a, a white British born citizen who's not, you know, a dual citizen, surely they would have had um, talked more about him. So I do encourage the uh, UK to do what's right for itself. Like even, you know, um, like knowing dual citizens like us um, who are not white, um, even, you know, when, when, when countries know that they can target us, like in the future, they know, and, and there's no cost. Um, like the, if the US or UK or what, whatever government, um, accepted that, you know, we be targeted, then they know that then, you know, it, it's not, um, that they know that there's a start that they can get away with it. So if it's, you know, it's like if the Muslim or the Brown or the dual citizen is first, you know, that then after that, they will be okay with even like, um, non-dual citizens. And so, so a price must be paid and, and. And the governments must call for the release. Thank you for that. I'm sure uh, Allah's family will appreciate you stand, uh, calling for his releases. Um, going back to your imprisonment, your wrongful imprisonment in Egypt, what should the US government be doing better to prevent this from happening to other American citizens? Uh, because I know the US government has established the role of the US Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, also known as SPIHA. This role is currently performed by Ambassador Roger Carstens. Did your family work with Spiha while you were imprisoned? Um, no, they, they weren't. And I, uh, I think the office there wasn't yet established. Um, I, just, I don't know if there's an escalation in the numbers of like, hostages that are taken. But I do feel, like, especially, um, especially when it comes to Egyptian dual citizens, that the government kind of has taken a lesson and started advocating for them earlier on. But, um, so, but to the question of what they should be doing is like, not obviously they shouldn't uh, be leaving uh, prisoners to rot there. There was the case of Mustafa Qasim. I don't know if you've heard about him. He was an American Egyptian and he, uh, uh, it was, at, so at, at the, um, Trump white house, uh, uh, vice president then started, started to get engaged, but, um, Al-Qasim was on a hunger strike and unfortunately he died. And so, um, so while like, you know, engagement is commendable, like they, a prisoner's life is quite precarious. And, the, and so they should like intervene way earlier on, like at the very first news of their arrest. All right. Thank you for that. And yes, there actually has been an escalation. Uh, so there are at least 50 to 60 Americans wrongfully detained or held hostage around the world. Um, in terms of hostage takers, there are two types. There are state actors, 
this will be countries like Egypt, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Russia, China, Rwanda, and there are non-state actors like terrorist groups, Somali pirates, for instance. So um, recently, the number in the last few years, the number of Americans held hostage abroad by state actors, by other countries, has increased and become a lot higher than the number of Americans held hostage by non-state actors like terrorist groups or Somali pirates. And as you know, it's a lot more complicated to secure the release of a hostage when they're being held by a country as opposed to a terrorist group because uh, the standard method or the usual method, uh, which is also an effective deterrent in many ways, um, is a military operation when the hostage is being held by a terrorist group or Somali pirates. Although I have to say, um, during military operations, that's when there's the highest risk of that hostage being killed in the crossfire. But at the same point, it still serves as an effective deterrent because when the hostage takers know that uh, SEAL Team 6 or Delta Force will kick the door down and shoot them in the head, that's a good motivation not to take hostages, especially Americans. And there are only perhaps four or five countries with elite military operators that have the capability to rescue hostages in this way. But when it comes to countries like Egypt or Iran or Venezuela or Russia or China, that a military operation is not really an option. You know, some countries might be brave enough or quote unquote reckless enough to try one and risk uh, all out war. But uh, yes, there has been an escalation in uh, countries taking Americans like yourself hostage. So yeah, um, I, I hope the US government does something better. Uh, the James W. Foley Foundation has done great work documenting the cases of Americans held hostage and wrongfully detained abroad. So if you're listening and want to find out more, please do check out the great work that the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation do. Um, as we discussed at the beginning, the US government got a lot more involved once the media started to talk about your case a lot more. What can journalists and news editors do to help? I think journalists and news editors, like they also have a role in um, lifting up the voices, um, um, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure, like in 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 spaces where um, where the hostage, either himself or herself, or through family, uh, have access, like to news news outlets, they would love to to promote to promote their case. And a lot of times, news outlets themselves they are complicit. In, like, and this is not a you know not a case that's going to gain traction. You know, also news outlets do want to sell, and so sometimes there is the duty of of doing reporting because it's right, um, and not only because it's going to sell. Um, and so, like, they, I think they should go out of their way to like either be responsive to, to the to the hostages or prisoners or their families, or even reach out to them. No, I absolutely agree, and you can see this with the case of WNBA superstar Brittany Griner. Um, the media can make more people aware of all these 50 to 60 Americans wrongfully detained or held hostage abroad. But at the moment, the media seems to be focusing on ratings. Not all of them. Um, and there are journalists that do great work um, at CNN and even Fox News and uh, um, other news outlets as well in raising the cases of individuals held not just in Russia, not just Brittany Griner, but other countries as well. But the problem is 
the media reports on cases they think the public want to hear about without realizing they have the capability to make the public interested and want to find out more if they just raise awareness of these cases that aren't getting the media attention. So I've spoken to the other families, right? They know uh, Brittany Griner is getting a lot more attention. And as a result, people are paying more attention to hostage diplomacy, uh, uh, wrongful detentions and what Americans are doing to bring them home and the limits of American power abroad, as well as the other cases. But it shouldn't take a celebrity being detained abroad for the media and therefore the government to care a lot more about other Americans wrongfully detained abroad. Um, these other Americans are, uh, some of them are human rights activists. Some of them are military veterans. Actually, quite a few of them are military veterans who serve the country, uh, serve the United States well, uh, and they're being held abroad, but they're not getting as much media coverage as Brittany Griner. At the same time, I just want to be clear, Brittany Griner should be brought home. She is a victim of hostage diplomacy. Um, it's just the media, I understand, is also, is not just about journalism. They are a business. They need to make money. The more people read or the more people click on an article, the more money they get. I understand that part. But I think that's why I created this podcast to raise awareness of uh, all these cases, even the ones that aren't covered by the media as much. And I also wanted to interview cases from all around the world to show that this is just not a problem for the UK or the US or Germany or Australia or France. This is a global problem that requires a global solution. It requires countries to come together. So again, I completely agree with your point that uh, the media should not just take the cases that rate well, but all the cases that need help. Um, what can the public do to help? So you got the American public, and you got the Egyptian public. The American public uh, has a lot more freedom here because when they speak out, there are less consequences uh, than the Egyptian public speaking out. So what can the public do to help? So, like, you know, in um, mentioning freedom, like even even signing change.org uh, could be a threat to, you know, not only Egypt, but whatever oppressive country like Iran or probably Russia, but the American public like has that, like even, um, even like in creation, um, in creation of media, like media interest in my case happened was when, when, um, when Egyptian public figures actually also spoke, uh, spoke about me and how Egyptian public figures spoke about me was when like regular people spoke. So like, you know, most of us, you know, most of us meaning like the public have social media accounts that, um, um, that we use and like and now like any person can can write a tweet that could go viral or grasp attention and so like engaging like paying attention to those issues and engaging with them on social media um talking to their representatives asking that they, you know showing that they care like you know the how regular advocacy happens in, in all other cases um and also like maybe even um like i i do not support one way or another of like boycotting a country or like not going tourism but you know you could pro raise the profile of a um of a country that's like holding hostages or whatnot by writing about it like i am gonna go to this country but uh you know um i don't appreciate like if you are gonna go 
and visits, but I don't appreciate it holding that person or I'm not going to go because it holds that person. And a lot of those countries, like even repressive countries, they do care about their image. And so like, and they do care especially about their image for like Western or, you know, or um, Western, like European or, or, or U.S. citizens. So like a, a citizen has leverage, like even if, if they write uh, an article, if they write on social media that they, you know, a criticism of a country, like odds are like, yes, of course, like it's not one person, but when it's more people, like when more people are engaged, like the countries will listen. You know, this is where the dollars are. <laughs> so like these countries are in bad need of dollars usually. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, you see a lot of this with Saudi Arabia, especially getting celebrities to come over and do stuff. Um, okay. So the next one is like you said about going to countries, right? Should foreigners working in Egypt for international corporations be concerned about being wrongfully detained in the country? And if so, what should these workers and the corporations they work for be doing? So honestly, like, um, if they are just like, you know, gas, petroleum, um, or like technology companies, I, I don't think that there should be concern. Um, whenever friends or acquaintances ask me if they should go, I'd say like, just keep away from asking questions. Like any, um, Egypt has a problem of thinking that everyone asking questions wants to bring it down or like it's doing it for the sake of espionage. Um, there were instances of like bloggers and like vloggers who talk about food, like who just like film in the streets have been arrested before. So like any, you know, while they could go to Egypt and while they could be safe, like any engagement, um, not only political, but like social, uh, could make them under threats. And of course here, you know, we'd highlight the case of Giulio Regini, who was a student, he was a researcher and he, he, he was not only killed, but he was also like tortured before he was killed. No, absolutely. Um, I tell people this when they ask me about hostage diplomacy. It's hostage diplomacy doesn't happen to everyone, but it can happen to anyone. So I know I've spoken to many former hostages who were held in Iran, for example, and they thought uh, if they just went to the country, minded their own business, uh, kept their head down and just did their thing, didn't do anything political, they'd be fine. Uh, no, they were, they were still arrested. It, it's, they were at the wrong place at the wrong time or for the IRGC, the right place at the right time. Um, and they were just detained because they had that American passport or the British passport. And many of these people have traveled to the country before. Brittany Griner has traveled to Russia many times before without being arrested. Uh, the people held in, uh, uh Iran, Venezuela, Russia, they've been there before as well. So. It's hostage diplomacy is doesn't happen to everyone, but it can happen to anyone. And that's why, and the fact that it doesn't happen to everyone is why not enough people seem to care about it at the moment. Um, and that's the problem because it affects their safety as well. Now, I, uh, we're almost at the end of our interview. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? No, I was just going to comment uh, on that of like hostage diplomacy and happening to anyone or everyone. I think it also requires a bit of knowledge on how this, and this is, I don't know how to get that knowledge per se, like how adverse this, the people and the states are to the U.S. So for example, Egypt is a U.S. ally, but it has, uh, but there's a very mixed feeling from the state itself and from the people towards Americans. 
But I've heard like before from uh, lots of Americans who do go and visit other countries, like they'd rather say they're Canadians because they know a lot of people, like not just in the Middle East or authoritarian countries, like even in Europe, have a lot of resentment uh, towards Americans. And so it might be more dangerous in in countries that are like state level and 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 a societal level that have more like adverse and hostile feelings to America, but like rather than, you know, mixed country, like, you know, Egypt or the middle East, how you would know that, I don't know, but, but you're right. It could, it could happen to anyone. Um, as like, you know, Regini probably didn't think he was suspect. I, I didn't think that I would be targeted. I was just like the regular citizen. You mentioned Julio Regini. So he is, uh, well, he was sadly, uh, Cambridge University student in the UK. He's an Ita- he was an Italian citizen. He went to Egypt to do research about labor unions and he was found tortured. His, de- his uh, body was found tortured uh, and he clearly been murdered. And it's believed that the Egyptian security forces were responsible for this. And to this day, correct me if I'm wrong, no one has been held accountable. And I know uh, Amnesty has called uh, for accountability because I remember attending uh, a number of demonstrations in front of the Egyptian embassy in London uh, with his uh, colleagues at Cambridge University and uh, activists calling for accountability. Can you just talk more about Julio Regini's case, please? Yes. So, yeah, I learned about Julio Regini when I was in prison myself and it was at the eve of January 25th, um, can't remember which year now, but it's, um, it, it used to be at least like in, in the, in the first years of CC's rules that he would pay very close attention on the January 25th because it's the memory of the revolution. And this was, I think like January 25 or January 26th that his body was found. Um, and this, this is very unusual, um, because he's also like a white, you know, European citizen, um, and, and whites, European or Americans have largely been immune. We've had like, we've had trials before of like, also like the American white European Americans who have been in nonprofits and they've been like deported, um, without even arrest and without, you know, um, standing in trials. So this was, so, this was shocking to everyone that he was treated as an Egyptian. Um, the Egypt has tried to cover it up and in its attempt, they have uh, murdered five, I believe, innocent, uh, Egyptians whom they, they, like the, the Egyptian media invented that there was a crime, that there was a, um, a gang that would t- target foreigners and they made like fake IDs and they just killed all five people. But then when people didn't buy it, like even, just, like even, uh, the layman in the streets wouldn't buy it. Like they started doing investigations and I didn't follow closely afterwards, but I know Italy and Egypt like have went back and forth with asking for evidence and for, um, and in submitting evidence and Egypt, I think was willing to implicate junior officers like involvements, but I don't believe that there were any arrests in the case. And I know that, um, like people who, who were paying attention to the case, like, what we know is that it wasn't junior officers who were involved. It was like right um, up to the highest level. We're so sorry for Julio Regini and his family and uh, our thoughts with them. And we hope that they get the accountability they deserve. And uh, this doesn't happen again. 
I yes, mean, yes. Uh, there's not really much I I can say, or I don't really know what to say. Um, I uh, I said this at the beginning of this episode, and I'll say it again. I'm so happy that you're free and back home in the United States. Uh, you seem to be happy and doing quite well, which gives hope to other hostages and their families that things will get better. Thanks for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you, Darren. And like big words of encouragement for any families or hostages who may be listening. Thank you for listening to Pod Hostage Diplomacy. Thank you for giving your time and for showing these families that they're not alone that there are good caring people out there willing to stand by their side and help in any way possible. Because um, if enough people care, then the right people will care enough. Um, this is a basic um, rule of thumb that is true for all campaigning. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our fortnightly newsletter called The Hostage Briefing. It's the best way to keep up to date with the cases we're working on, as well as new episodes. You can subscribe to this newsletter using the link in the description of this podcast episode that you're currently listening to. Thanks again, and take care.